Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And following on from that introduction, our first song calls us to rejoice in him. Come, people of the risen King.
Let's pray. Lord God, we know that every time we gather together, we're coming from different situations. We come with different outlooks, some of us joyful, some of us weeping, some of us just weary or fearful about tomorrow. But as different as we feel, we all come to the same Lord Jesus, our risen Savior, the one whose perfect love will never change, the one whose mercies never cease. And so together this morning, we look up to the one we need. The only one who can bring us through all the shifting scenes and circumstances of our lives. There's so much for us to be concerned with, so many things to occupy us. But in this time, we refocus on what is most important. You and your greatness. So we ask you to help us. Will you renew our trust in you? Will you refresh us through your word? Will you show us again the riches of your glorious grace? Amen. Our next song expresses the joy of being found and loved by this God we've been thinking of, our God. When I was lost, you came and rescued me.
If I were to ask, who are you, what would you say? Probably the first thing you'd say is your name, and that would be a good start. But beyond that, what would you say? The question, who are you, is a question about your identity. What's special about you? What are you about? What makes you, you? If that seems way too philosophical for this time of the morning, think about a recent example. If you can think back to the time when coronavirus wasn't the only thing in the news, then think back a bit further to the time when Brexit wasn't the only thing in the news. Before Brexit and coronavirus, we were hearing a lot about gender identity. The core idea of gender identity is that your identity is bound up with your gender. Your maleness or femaleness is what makes you, you. And of course, the argument being made by some people was that we should be able to choose our gender. They argued that our gender wasn't determined by what body parts we have or don't have, but that we should just be whatever we wanted to be. And if we felt differently tomorrow, we could be something different tomorrow. Now, without getting bogged down in that issue, and I acknowledge it is a complex issue, do you see what the assumption is? It's that the most significant thing about you is whether you're male or female. And the assumption is we get to choose whether we're male or female. So really, we have no true, solid identity. All we have is what we feel like during a particular period of our lives or even a particular day of our lives. Doesn't that seem so limited? Doesn't it seem so unstable? Doesn't it mean we really have no true identity at all? Now, certainly the Bible agrees being male or female is a significant part of who we are. But the Bible tells us we are much, much more than that. And the Bible also tells us who we are is much more stable and solid than just how we feel today. When it comes to identity, the Bible has very good news for us. Our identity is greater and richer than our gender. And it's not something we have to create for ourselves. God gives us an identity. I think this issue of identity is particularly relevant at the moment. Because so many of the things we might have based our identity on have either become uncertain or they've been taken away altogether. If your identity is bound up with your social life, these last few weeks may have left you feeling at a loss. For those who find their identity in their work and the things they could do, how many are feeling upended as they either lose their job or worry about losing it? 
For many people, losing their job isn't just losing an income, it's losing the thing that gave their lives purpose. Their identity is tied up with their work and their skills. So I think this is a perfect time for us to think about our identity. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the perfect place for us to turn. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at his letter to the Ephesians. And it has a very simple structure. There are six chapters in the letter. Chapters one to three tell us about our identity in Christ, who we really are. Then chapters four to six show us how to live out our identity in Christ. Ephesians is unusual among Paul's letters because he doesn't seem to be writing to address any particular situation in the church. Normally, as we read Paul's letters, we get a sense of the situation he's writing to because Paul talks about it and he writes to help the church deal with it. Not too long ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians, and in that letter, Paul works his way through a long list of issues in the Corinthian church. But in this letter, it's not like that. I don't think there's any place in this letter where we can definitely say, ah, that's why Paul wrote to them. That's the problem he's responding to. And so what we have in this letter to the Ephesians is what Paul chooses to write about when he can write about whatever he wants. And he chooses to write about our identity and the life that flows out of our identity. Who we are in Christ, chapters 1 to 3, and what that means for our words and attitudes and relationships and actions chapters 4 to 6. So with that introduction, let's start reading the letter. We'll read chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. At the very beginning in verse 1, Paul makes it clear he is not speaking here on his own behalf, giving us his own ideas. Paul is a messenger of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle. And he was appointed as a messenger by God himself. So you and I can take Paul's words seriously, not so much because Paul says them, but because God sent Paul to say them. And Paul's message in this passage is very simple. You are blessed. That's what he wants us to take from this passage. But it's crucial for us to notice who these words are for in verse 2. Therefore, God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus, or we could translate that second part, those who have faith in Christ Jesus. So the message that you are blessed is not a message for everyone. It's for those who belong to Jesus Christ because they have put their faith in him. In the 14 verses we read, Jesus Christ is mentioned 16 times. And eight times we're told the blessings Paul mentions come to us in Christ. So this is not for everyone. If you're not a Christian, all of this could be for you, but only if you take the step of bowing to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the King of your life. If you're not a Christian and you find this passage to be comforting and uplifting, then you've misunderstood it. First, acknowledge that you are lost without Jesus. Turn your present and your future and your past over to Jesus, and then come back to these words to be comforted and uplifted. But if you are a Christian, then because you are in Christ, you are blessed in every way this passage says you are blessed. And it says you're blessed in four ways. You are chosen, you are rescued, you are enlightened, and you are an heir. Those four words are reality for you. They are true for you, whatever your circumstances. Whatever it is you might have lost in your life. Whatever handicaps or limitations you have to live with day by day. Whatever deep hole 
you feel you're in right now. These four words are true of you because they are not dependent on your circumstances or your feelings. Look how Paul explains that in verse 3. He says, these blessings are in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Well, we might think heavenly realms means heaven, but it doesn't. And here's proof that it doesn't. In chapter 6 of this letter, Paul speaks about spiritual warfare. And he says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible is clear. Heaven is God's home. Heaven is a place of purity. There is no evil in heaven. But here we're told there is evil in the heavenly realms. So what are the heavenly realms? They're simply the dimension of reality where spiritual warfare goes on. They are the spiritual dimension. That's why in verse 3, Paul goes on to say, the blessings we have in Christ are spiritual blessings. They're absolutely real and concrete, but they're not the kind of blessings that sit on your shelf or in your wardrobe or on your driveway. Gadgets, clothes, and cars might be blessings, but they're not the kind of blessings Paul is talking about. These blessings are the most valuable kind because they cannot be taken away from you. Circumstances cannot touch these blessings. Other people can't steal them. Even the devil himself cannot snatch these blessings away from you. He can't mess them up on you. The verse on the screen from chapter 6 talks about warfare in the spiritual realm. But here at the start, Paul assures us these spiritual blessings are secure. Whatever warfare goes on, whatever goes on in the spiritual realm, nothing can rob us of these blessings. So when you hear the word spiritual, don't make the mistake of thinking these blessings are airy-fairy or second-rate. They are the most significant kind of blessing because they're secure. Every other kind of blessing can disappear overnight. But when your car and your gadgets and your clothes have turned into dust, these blessings will be as real and strong as ever. They are utterly unshakable. And the first blessing you have in Christ is the blessing of knowing you are chosen. We might be embarrassed to say that God chose us. We might feel it sounds arrogant. In fact, we might wonder if all the blessings we're going to look at sound a bit arrogant. But the Bible disagrees. In the case of this first blessing, the Bible has no embarrassment in saying that God's people have been chosen by God. 
In the Old Testament, God said this to Israel through Moses. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. And here in our passage, in verse 4, Paul says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Verse 5 says the same thing in slightly different words. He predestined us for adoption to sonship. To predestine something means to decide it in advance. In this case, even before creation. God chose you. Of course, that doesn't take away our responsibility to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. The New Testament repeatedly and pointedly calls us to do that, urgently. We have a clear responsibility to respond to God's call. But when we do, when we come into God's family, we discover that amazingly, before we ever loved God, He loved us. And what this means is our membership in God's family is totally different from Charlie's visit to the chocolate factory. If you know that story, Charlie is a little boy who finds a golden ticket. And that's what gets him into the chocolate factory. Out of millions of chocolate bars... Charlie just happened to buy one of the five chocolate bars that had a golden ticket in the wrapper. Now, the man who owned the chocolate factory, Mr. Willy Wonka, he had no interest in Charlie. He didn't seek Charlie out, out of all the other children. He didn't go looking for Charlie because he wanted Charlie to be with him. He just sent out five golden tickets, and Charlie happened to get one. It was just luck. Charlie happened to go to the shop on the day when the right chocolate bar happened to be at the top of the pile. But here, verses 4 and 5 are telling us God went about things with you in a totally different way. He didn't throw out the equivalent of a few golden tickets and you luckily happen to get one, so you're in his family. No, God chose you. He didn't leave it to chance. He went after you because he wanted you. The end of verse 5 says this choosing was in accordance with God's good pleasure and will. God is pleased about having chosen you. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody forced him into this. It was his good pleasure and will to do it. Isn't that so much better than a lucky golden ticket? If you're a Christian, it is not an accident that you specifically are in God's family. You're not in his family because you happen to hear about the right words to say in a prayer and now God has to let you into his family. You're in the family because he chose you gladly 
And verse 5 tells us, we have not been accepted as second-class members of the family. Verse 5 says, God predestined you for adoption to sonship. We might wonder, well, why not sonship and daughtership? Well, in the ancient world, the firstborn son had the greatest rights and privileges in the family. That was just how it worked. And the idea of being God's son runs through the whole Bible. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God told Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But God did not say to Pharaoh, these people are sort of valuable to me. I sort of like them a bit, so let them go. No, God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. In other words, God was saying, these people are the people I have set my heart on. They're not just sort of important to me. They are the most important to me. And we could follow this all the way through Scripture until we get to Jesus, God's only Son. But the remarkable thing is, after telling us about Jesus' unique, special place as God's Son, the New Testament goes on to tell us when we come and put our trust in Jesus, the Son of God, we are adopted as His brothers. We become sons as well. Whether we're men or women, we receive the privileges of the firstborn son. Along with Jesus, we can call God our Father. Again, so much better than a lucky golden ticket. God chose us not just to be his friends, but to be his adopted, dearly loved children. We are children of the King of Kings. Royal children. But unlike many royal children, we have a genuine purpose. Here in Great Britain, many members of our royal family struggle to find a purpose in life. It's been a constant theme over the years. As many of them ask, I'm a royal, but what am I for? What's the point of my existence? What is my purpose? We might think of one royal in particular who recently emigrated to Canada and then emigrated again to the United States. Now, whatever our particular opinion might be of Harry and Meghan and their situation, isn't there something deeply sad to see someone who's born to great privilege but who can't seem to find his purpose in life? Who's reduced to trying to create a purpose and a role for himself. But it is not like that in God's royal family. God doesn't, didn't just choose us and then scratch his head about what he would, had chosen us for. 
Look again at verse 4. He chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. If you're a Christian, your life can never be aimless. It can never be purposeless. Now, you might not know what subjects to choose at school. You might not know what career to pursue. But you do know God chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is your purpose. To pursue a character that is like God's character. Holy, faithful, trustworthy, good, Whatever subjects you study, whatever job you do, your purpose doesn't change. God chose you to be his ambassador in this world, to represent him by living and speaking in ways that reflect his character. Even if you don't like the subjects you're doing or the work you're doing. In verse 1, Paul said, Christians are holy people. And now we see we are also called to become holy people. How does that work? How does it fit together? Well, the first half of this letter, as we said, is all about our identity as God's holy people. The second half of the letter is how we can show that more and more in the way we live. So verse 4 is a preview of chapters 4 to 6. But it's included here at the beginning to show us God chose us for a purpose. You and I don't have to try and invent a meaning for our lives. God has given it to us. It's to represent Him in your family and your work. In any other situation you find yourself in. Don't live in those situations to serve yourself. Live to serve Him and honor Him and be more and more like Him. Will any of us ever do that perfectly in this life? No. Will we ever do it close to perfectly? No. But can we grow in it over a lifetime? Absolutely we can. And as you and I pursue growth in this, we are fulfilling the purpose we were chosen for. So long as we pursue this God-given purpose, our lives will never be aimless or empty. Even in lockdown. Even when it seems the work we're doing is insignificant. It has genuine significance when we see we have been chosen as God's representative in that situation. The other blessings in this passage all flow out of that first one. Here's the second way you are blessed as a Christian. The second word 
that describes you. You are rescued. Look at verse 7. In him, again, in Christ, we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian, the biggest problem you will ever face has already been taken care of. It has been permanently taken care of. Blood is a way of talking about violent death. When someone dies in their sleep, there's no blood involved. A bloody death is a violent one. That's the kind of death Jesus died on the cross. He was slaughtered as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And his sacrifice was enough for all your sins. Jesus has rescued you from hell. You've been bought out of your slavery to sin. Your debt has been paid. There are plenty of ways to describe what Jesus did for you. And they're all helpful. But it boils down to this. Your sins are forgiven. They're gone. God says he has forgotten them. So even if you find it impossible to forget them, you can be assured they are no issue as far as God's concerned. Now I know as Christians we talk about this so much that we can begin to lose the wonder of it. The wonder of the truth that God has nothing against us. Whatever it is you've done, God will never bring it up and condemn you with it. And that's not because Jesus somehow twisted his father's arm to force him to forgive you. In the middle of verse 7, it says, this forgiveness in Christ is given to us in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God is not reluctant to forgive us. He's delighted to do it. This is the language of enthusiasm. Despite the terrible, terrible cost to God to redeem us through Christ's blood. Despite God's complete understanding ahead of time as to what it would cost. God did it with eagerness. It was his pleasure to lavish this grace on us. Grace that cost him so much. So somebody has said, God's willingness to pay the highest price for us shows him to be not merely a gracious God, but an overwhelmingly gracious God. You are blessed because in Christ you have been rescued. And you've also been enlightened. To be enlightened is to have understanding. And again, we might think this is terribly arrogant. But as it's presented to us here, we're not being told this is down to our own great minds. This is understanding given to us as a gift from God. Look at verse 9. 
God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In the New Testament, a mystery is something we could not know unless God revealed it to us. And here, the mystery that's been revealed is that history has one ultimate goal. That goal is to unite heaven and earth under Christ. That's where history is going. History is not an aimless merry-go-round of pandemics and wars and economic booms and busts and political leaders and celebrities coming and going. As Christians, we know all that apparently chaotic stuff is part of a divine plan. It's all moving us towards the day when heaven and earth will finally be united under Christ. History is organized around him. All the great empires and civilizations of the past, they thought they could bring unity to the chaos of history. They thought they were the answer. But one by one, they all either crash or they fade away pathetically. But if you're a Christian, you know who the answer is. You know what the outcome's going to be. Christ will return, and when he returns, he will bring peace and wholeness and renewal to creation. He will reconcile heaven and earth. Years ago, there was a pop song that said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But if you're a Christian, you have found what you're looking for. The search is over. You know the Lord of history. You belong to him. So you don't have to curl up in fear every time a new crisis hits. You don't have to turn on the news in fear and trepidation. Because you know the end of the story. And that's a blessing we should never underestimate. The end of the story will come in God's time and in God's way. He's been working towards this goal long before you or I came along. And he has never yet put a foot wrong. So yes, you and I don't know all the details. God isn't going to tell us all the details. But even in the very darkest and confusing times, we can rest easy. Because by God's grace, we know the end of the story. Then if you're a Christian, you are blessed because you are an heir. In the NIV, verse 11 begins, In him we were also chosen. 
but it's not the same word there as the word we saw in verse 4. And there's a footnote in the NIV giving another possible translation. In him we were made heirs. That's the better translation because the word used is a form of the word inheritance, which appears in verse 14. The two words are connected. And the reason we are heirs to an inheritance is because we've been adopted to sonship. We already saw that back in verse 5. Jesus, the Son of God, is heir to an eternal inheritance. And through faith in Jesus, you have become a co-heir with him. Our Father in heaven is not stingy. He is going to share all that he has with us, with you. Now, that does not mean we will become gods. It does mean our future will be beyond our wildest dreams. But this is not a dream. God has already given us a down payment of what's to come. Look at the middle of verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We might read that and think, okay, I'm glad the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of what's to come, but I can't see the Holy Spirit. I can't touch him. I can't hear him. How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Well, the teaching of the New Testament is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. But we want evidence of that. So, for evidence, think about your life. Think back over the twists and turns of it. Some of us have had more twists and turns than others. But think back to where you've been and where you've come from. Think about everything that led you to where you are now, listening to this. As you look back, don't you see how the Holy Spirit has guided you? How he's preserved you? And picked you up when you wandered off or fell flat in your face? Do you see how the Holy Spirit has given you strength? To get through things you could never have got through without Him? Looking back, don't you see how He's been at work? Even when you were oblivious to it at the time. Can you see how sometimes he has even worked through you to bless others? That past work of the Spirit is not just your guarantee that he's with you today and that he'll be with you tomorrow. It's your guarantee he won't ever give up on you. He will bring you at last into your eternal glorious inheritance. You are an heir. 
And God's Holy Spirit does not abandon heirs. Even more so, because God doesn't just want to give you what's his, he wants you for himself. That's the amazing statement Paul makes at the end of verse 14. He says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. God doesn't just want to give you an inheritance. You're the inheritance he wants. Along with the rest of his people. This is not a new idea. The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament says the Lord's portion is his people. And that's the point here. As hard as it might be for you to believe some days, the Bible says God wants you as his inheritance. Could there be anything greater than this? Could anything on your shelf or your driveway compare to this? Would you trade this for anything? Surely not. Surely everything else peels in comparison to this. Surely all of our losses all of our disappointments cannot compare to what we have in Jesus Christ. And as you and I come to realize that, we cannot help praising God for his grace and his generosity. And as we praise him, we are doing what we were designed to do. We're doing what the whole universe was designed to do. Because you see, the heart of this passage is not about us at all. It's about the greatness and the worthiness of the God who does all this for us. Back in verse 3, Paul began all this by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. In verse 6, speaking about God choosing us, Paul said this is to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, speaking about the hope God has given us in Christ, this too is for the praise of his glory. And finally in verse 14, God making us his inheritance is to the praise of his glory. You and I are blessed for God's glory. So he can be seen for the gracious, loving God that he is. The God who delights to lavish grace on his people. So there's nothing arrogant about counting the blessings we have in Christ. As we count those blessings, as we name them, 
as we sing about them, as we lean on them day to day, as we find joy and hope in them, as we do all of that, we are giving glory to the God behind the blessings. So let's learn to do that, to count our blessings and praise the God who gave them to us. And let's praise him now together as we join in and sing, Loved Before the Dawn of Time.
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Amen.